Okay, it's February 1st, 3.42. I'm just kind of finishing up my prayer walk today here in Stonemark. And I want to just capture a quick spiritual update. Um, physically, I've been feeling great because I've not taken the uh, any had any carbs today. And I've been feeling actually quite good. Um, spiritually, I've noticed over the last couple of weeks, it's been at least a couple of weeks now, there's been, um, my faith has been pretty steady, but it's steadily fragile. I can look back to many months. This has been, you know, gosh, nine or ten months now. Actually, it's been a full year since January 17th of last year where the Lord, um, I felt led that He asked me to set down my my uh, video business and go into the ministry. And there's been some hiccups here and there along the way and course changes, but I'm still basically doing that and living totally in faith. Every single time I've tried to take work think about getting a job or starting my video business again. The Lord gives me the sit still scriptures, 919 and 525. And so there's been throughout the walk, there's been several moments where it's so hard I I just want to quit. But then right behind it, there would be kind of a faith high. In other words, God would really encourage me and strengthen me and something cool would happen and I'd have this just filled up to overflowing a solid faith. I believe, I believe, I know, I know. It hasn't been there for a couple of weeks. I've been, I would say, much more clinging. And instead of fighting from faith, I'm fighting for faith. And I'm praying that this has got to be so close to the end and this has been such a long, hard thing to do. Very. I don't know that anybody could join, you know, mix their faith in with me on this. This has been very difficult, uh, very lonely walk. But God has continued to sustain me, hence the reason why I'm still standing and waiting and walking in faith. But I just want to, you know, make sure that I capture that this this has not been easy. It's been lots of moments of doubt. Like I woke up this morning and. You know, you wake up kind of groggy and was thinking some some negative thoughts. The thing that is sustaining me is by staying busy in my studies of the Word and keeping my eyes on the Lord and, and literally just talking to Him and telling Him how I'm feeling and concerned the whole time. Um, that is what's kept me going, but I still don't have that big, huge, overly confident, filled up to overflowing faith that that I've had a lot of over the last year. I haven't had that for at least a couple of weeks. It's been very much uh, more subdued, weaker faith where the circumstances are really pressing. The wind is really blowing. I mean, and then, you know, to change my church situation and and all that and having people turn against you and question you and lose your credibility. I mean, that's just added. That's like adding insult to the injury of, you know, having to wait in faith in some very difficult circumstances. So I have pretty much every day begged the Lord to allow me to just have the finances to pay for my children, to pay the child support. I've, I've begged the Father for the, for the ability to do that. I said, Lord, please just give me my dignity back in this, God. I want so bad to provide for them. And, you know, I, I actually have so much compassion for I feel I feel terrible for her. I mean... I would not want her to do this to me. I would not want her. I mean, even after all the mean stuff that she did to me, I feel so bad 
I feel so sad that, you know, she's having to, to go without child support. That's horrible. And, you know, since we don't have any kind of a talking relationship, it's not like she could remotely believe me or understand that, you know, I'm doing what I'm doing because I'm being obedient to God and that somehow in the end, God is going to make good with this. I mean, she must think I'm some kind of a absolute mental retard and that I'm just planning on riding a couch the rest of my life. She has no idea what's going on. I'm not I'm not overly worried about what she thinks because I know that God's going to bring this all good. I do feel bad. I'm sure she's brought even more judgment, you know, against herself and saying all kinds of horrible things about me and telling the kids more things and stuff like that, but I just feel bad because I want to provide, you know, so it's been so difficult for me to do this. It's been a total um, inability to do just a basic thing that I want to do, which is to provide for my family. I've always wanted to do that. I've always been a guy who's provided, you know, a high amount of income. I, I, I never did good with spending it or managing it um, or planning for the future with it, but I was always a pretty good provider, you know, for well above average. We had we had a well above average life for a good bit. And so to not even be able to provide for them just has been such a huge blow. Um, but as those words come out of my mouth, I realize how necessary that blow has been. I've, I've journaled about this several times that it's, it's, a, it's a crushing blow to the pride and to the dignity and it, it literally has been so good for me and fight in spite of the fact that it's causing so much heartache for for and her parents it is doing me a great deal um, of benefit God is using that to continue to shape me I and mean, think about it they they are saying such horrible things about me and you know to a certain extent if, if as it relates to the child support thing I could imagine them saying you know this guy's a loser throw him in jail I could totally see why they would say something like that and believe it. And yet, God is the one who put me in a situation by my obedience to Him that's allowing them to say those horrible things too. You know, my my kids or, or, or about me. And their reaction has also been helpful to me in, you know, trusting God and going through suffering and growing stronger. You know, it's just a very, very odd set of circumstances. It's almost like, you know, God put me in a position to make me look guilty in their eyes to cause them to throw even more fire and rocks and slander and accusations at me, which in turn is a test for me. It's a battle for me. So it's a really weird thing. I want to do the right thing. I, I so bad want to help them. So that's the thing that's bothered me the most about this is... Not me doing without anything. I'm so content. I mean, I have a level of contentment I didn't know it was possible to ever even have. Like, I have no desire for any material things. I mean, I'd, I'd like to have my own vehicle, and I'd like to have a small little apartment to live in. But I don't have to have any kind of a fancy vehicle. I don't have any desire. I don't see ones and go, oh, I'd really like to have, you know, something like that. I don't have that materialistic desire in me anymore. And, um, you know, uh, what kind of a price can I put on that long term? If God had to put me through not only that, but all the other benefits, as I think about all the things that God has changed in my heart, it's just been incredible. So the, the changes in my heart are the one thing 
the greatest evidence I have to know that God is okay with everything that's going on, that God is in control of everything that's going on, and that I'm in the right place. In fact, I started off um, my walk today talking to the Lord about these things and looked up and a car was passing with 111 on it as if for him to remind me, I love you, son, and I'm proud of you. I'm pleased with you. And I said, Lord, I'm trying to obey you the very best I can. I don't, I don't have a lot of clarity on a lot of things right now that I'd like to. I'm not 100% sure if the Lord's okay with me doing the, you know, the recordings the way I'm doing, put them on the website, or if God's wanting me to do even more videos, and um, if God is pleased with the church selection I'm starting to make, uh, uh, what does He want me to do long term? I, I, I don't really know any of that. God has allowed me to be in the dark still on all kinds of things. What I absolutely feel like, I want to make sure I capture, is God has been showing me all these numbers that end in 55. 955-855-755-655. There's been all these 555 numbers. And as best as I can tell, they're all pointing to scriptures or pages in the Bible that have passages that relate to God's faithfulness. And they're all passages where somebody begins to declare before the assembly that all of God's promises came true and that He's faithful. And this is what I'm seeing um, in the scriptures and in the numbers that God has, has been showing me. He's been showing me quite often 955, and I'm really believing that that has to do with that a wife of noble character is her husband's crown. And I think that that is God showing me that He is going to bless me with Laura because that first day He made the connection between 955 and 1001, where it's about Solomon receiving his crown on the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. And um, I really feel like God's telling me, if you'll just keep hanging in there, you know, I, that's what I believe. I could absolutely be wrong on all of this, but, you know, having had the experience of the 555 and the 666s and the 777s and God knowing how to speak to me, I'm totally trusting it. The other thing I want to put in this message that builds my faith even as I say it is I've been going through the recordings because I'm writing the 212 story about Laura in advance. And I've been going through the recordings and I found several more recordings I had forgotten about where God uses a 919 on both sides or in the middle or during a talk with my mom where my mom tries to get me to take money from her or tries to get me to move on going back into my video business or doing something to make income, God has always used the 919 right around with my mom to keep me from moving on that. And that, that again, when I look back on that, that gave me great confidence to say, wow, God's still doing this. You know, here we are almost a year later and God is still doing this with the 919s. And incidentally, I think that's why I saw so many 919s three or four days ago for a period of two or three days, right before I saw Tom. God knows I put a lot of value in that man's opinions, and I care an awful lot about him, and I respect his opinion. And sure enough, he insinuated that, you know, are you sure about all this kind of thing? And so it's no wonder that God maybe gave me the, the 919s, and then plus, you know, for a couple of days, I've been almost to the point of begging God, Lord, let me please go back to work, you know? But I would rather wait and see God glorified if in fact He's going to do what I believe He's going to do. And that is, I just have a strong sense, and I could be completely wrong because I had no idea how God was going to end up the divorce, but 
I have the strong sense that God is going to move upon somebody's heart to bless me with finances. That somebody's going to look at this and say, you know, this guy is living the real deal. This guy is no longer in love with the world. He's being obedient to God like, you know, very few people I've seen be obedient. And he's got a message. He's got a passion. He's got a ministry. And I, through God's moving, want to help this guy. And I just, I'm really believing that that's what's going to happen. And oh, how I pray that I'm right, because if I'm wrong about all this, man, I am in serious, serious trouble. But God just keeps every time I've tried to turn away from this or gotten discouraged. God shows me 555, I wake up in the morning, or I turn around and it's on the clock, or I see 1101 or 1122, have faith in God. You know, so this is just such an epic, I mean, even right now as I'm saying this, it's just blowing my mind how epic this whole situation is, this whole story. I mean, here God asks me to live with no money for an entire year to be able to give. I haven't been able to give for nine months. I haven't been able to give a dollar in child support to my wife, my ex-wife, and to my kids. Because God says, nope, sit still. And because I will do everything to obey the Father... I'm willing to do something that looks completely stupid and completely irresponsible and completely just illogical because I so bad want to see the Father glorified. And I look at this story and if God comes through like I believe He's going to come through, this story is going to bring Him so much glory, it's not even comprehensible. I mean, this could be such an amazing, amazing book of what it would be like to trust God. There is this journey that I've been on is so rich with God's ways. I mean, you can learn so much my kids alone. Praise God. I pray as God delivers me, he'll when he delivers me, it will give me such confidence in my handling and understanding of his word and of his ways. Things I believe I know now, they will be so etched in such deep experiential conviction in my heart. I'm just so excited and blessed about what God can do through this if I'll hold on. And I'm just praying that I'm not building this up in my heart and that I'm not believing some fantasy thing here, but that God really is going to do something amazing. I mean, when you look at the court situation, getting the automobile... You know, the finances, ministry, fruit, and Laura. All these things I'm having to wait for. How unbelievable would it be to capture all of this in a book? A journey of faith, walking with God, so that people can be encouraged in their own faith to begin to trust God by surrendering their life, surrendering their will, surrendering their desires and goals, and beginning to seek God, willing to, to lay it all down for Him, knowing that He'll step into that, and he will begin to guide and direct and challenge. He'll begin to allow them to suffer. He'll begin to speak to them. He'll begin to bless them. The enemy will begin to haunt them. And yet they could read through a book of somebody who's already gone through all these things and maybe, you know, day by day be encouraged in their own walk. How much exponential glory could this be for God if God is setting me up and has built this whole story for the very purposes of helping other people to Learn how to walk with God and learn how to take Him seriously, the God of the Bible. 
laying down this Americanized, watered-down, culturally irrelevant Christianity and picking up biblical Christianity, which brings unbelievable pleasure to the Father, unbelievable joy to the heart of the follower, and glory to the King of Kings. God, I just pray, let it be in Jesus' name, Lord. Let it be, Father, that all of this waiting and all this affliction and suffering, Father, is all for your glory, Lord, in Jesus' name. God, let it be, Father. Let it be, Lord. Oh, I could be the happiest guy in the whole world. It's February 2nd, 8.40 in the morning. I'm turning off the exit to go to Summit Crossing. And I was just in prayer pretty much the whole way here. And I literally just said these words, Thank you, God, for looking after me. Uh, implying for protecting me and providing as you know much as he's given me in spite of the fact I don't have hardly any circumstances he's been giving me wonderful uh, strength in my spirit and endurance and character development and truth and just as I said father thank you for looking after me a maroon Ford pickup truck passes with license plate 555 at the end of it and I'm just like thank you God again you know, constantly confirming he's got this. He'll deliver me. I've been seeing quite a bit. Five, five, fives on a pretty much a daily basis. So I'm looking forward to this. And uh, also, when I was praying, I looked down and saw 111 on the miles, miles, and just felt like the Lord was telling me he was proud. I've been praying a lot about Laura this morning, and I always pray for her um, every single. Obviously, I pray for her every single day, but I pray intensely for her the mornings of church. And I uh, was just praying for and about her and, and all that and uh, just telling the Lord that I completely trust His timing and and I'm so thankful for everything He's done and, and then I looked down at, at the 111. So uh, very encouraging. It's 1040. I just left church at Summit Crossing and I leave deep in thought. I, I really like... Paul and I really love his mother and I was actually so blessed even by his dad on the way out he seems to he's been a guy it's hard to tell where he's coming from and he even called me son he said hey he said good to see you son and I was just blessed by that but I still have a desire for some reason a real deep desire in myself to go check out this Grace Community Church. I, I don't know why, but I, I, obviously I, I just feel like I, I owe it to myself. But I, I think I kind of feel this morning the uncertainty in my church relationship that I felt in my marriage relationship after the divorce. Meaning, when you go through a divorce, there's part of you that wants to instantly find somebody to take the pain away. And then there's another part of you that is afraid to make any kind of a commitment to a person because, you know, you just went through something so hurtful and you don't want to do it again. And so you keep at a distance. And I, I actually kind of feel like that's what I'm doing with Summit. Like I love Miss Nancy so much and I, the, the teaching is, is good, but I, I did notice that I do feel a little bit different, you know, I mean, not that that's a, a bad thing, but you know, the, the people at this church are, are substantially younger. There's quite a bit of young people in this church. An interesting thought about that is that I am drawn to older people. I'm not 100% sure I even know why, but I love the humility I feel of being around people that are older than me, that have gone through more life experiences than me, 
I think there's a part of me that whenever I see old people, I always have such a desire to want to interview them. Like I would love to know their life story and, you know, what they've experienced and um, what good things have happened, what they would have done differently and, you know, just questions about the Lord and all that kind of stuff. Um, I've always, I've always been curious like that. When I look at this church that has a lot of younger people in them, then I feel the little bit of resistance because it's like I still feel like I need to be around people that can teach me more. Uh, I don't know how else to explain it. It's like I, I'm just drawn to older people. And um, I mean, all my friends are older than I am. They always have been. I am not rarely drawn to people that are younger than me. Um, it could just be the stage of life that I'm into where I'm so hungry for learning that I love being around people I know I can learn something from. And I have a difficult time thinking that I can learn from people much that are younger than me just because of how much experience I've had in my life. I rarely meet anybody that has gone through the kind of things I've gone through um, as much as I've gone through, particularly younger people that could ever add anything. Whereas people that are older, they're kind of like, even if they haven't been through quite as dramatic, they've been there, done that, they've come through for it. So I feel like I... There's a, a hope and something I can learn, lessons to be gleaned from that situation. Um, but I also am a little aware of the fact that everybody in this church dresses differently than I do. They dress very casual, and it's this, um, I don't even know how to describe the look. It's very much like a uh, my old employee, Justin Johnson, used to dress the, you know, um, kind of more uh, bearded look and uh, the the flannel type shirts. I don't know how to explain it. It's just this certain look. It's not like a grunge look. It's just a, oh man, I, I don't know, like a Colorado look maybe. I don't know where it comes from. It's And so they all kind of look the same. You kind of look around and you see uh, everybody kind of looks the same. Granted, you go to... A Baptist church and everybody kind of looks the same. So I'm not saying that everybody looking the same is wrong. I just noticed like I'm, I dress a little bit more, I would say maybe a little more preppy. And, um, I feel like I'm, I kind of stand out at this church a little bit, um, by age and by dress. And having said all of that, I look around and I see a sincere love for Christ. What looks to be like a very sincere love for the Lord and these people. Um, I've, I've noticed a couple of single guys that I've, I've watched them and, and the younger guys, and they seem to be lifting their voice, even hands to the Lord a couple of times. And that looks to me like an unforced, um, you know, act of love towards God, a real honor and, and an adoration for the Lord. And I'm very sensitive to look for that, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I don't know why I can't get my I, I, it's like I there's a part of me that's so bad wants to plant in this church, but there's something that's preventing me from doing it. I'm starting to feel the same kind of feelings I had when I first came. Like, I don't know if I'm ever going to find a church that's going to meet my ideal dream church um, expectations. Uh, and I And I really believe also that I told the father, I said, Lord, help me just let all these people disappear in this moment of worship. I find the people are in worship. It can be distracting. You know, well, if I lift my hands too high, is this person going to be worried? I don't, I don't like that kind of stuff. I don't like having to think about other people, you know, 
I don't like having to think about maybe the person behind me is, you know, just looking at the back of my neck hasn't been shaved right or, you know, are my pants too bunched up in my rear because I wore too big of pants, just weird things. And it's like all those things can affect and steal away from just being one-on-one. So I was like, Lord, I know I'm in a new place, so I'm conscious of the people, but Father, let me just have them all go away. It's just you and I. And I, I've so learned to enjoy private solitude with, with time with the Lord that it's, it's difficult to go back and try to do this with people. It's, it is. And I know that I'm called to do this. I'm called to be a part of the body. I'm not saying that what I feel is wrong, but because I have such skepticism about what I just went through, where people looked all smiley and it was comfortable and confident, but then it turns out that their lives don't look anything like what I believe they should. That, that really saddened me. I mean, that just really just like now I could even get emotional about it. I, just bothers me so much. I know I'm never going to find a church where every person practices what they preach and lives the perfect Christian sinless life. I know that doesn't exist. Stuff I got to think about. I'm, I feel so torn again. You know, I, I want to serve and yet at the same time I feel like, how am I supposed to serve, you know, in church with my gifting when I'm doing the internet thing and how what's it going to look like? I'm doing my own Bible study and I don't know, I guess I just don't have a whole lot of confidence right now in in people in church until I get to know them a whole lot better. I've been bruised. I'm that skeptical, you know, man or woman who's been abused, and now you're very cautious. So, okay, now I'm just over-talking. There is an isolation that God is doing that is very good, that is very biblical, and also has a lot to do with the time that we are living in. We are not in the beginning of the book of Acts where there was this building up of the church. We are in the dying out of the church. You have got to understand this. This is a key that unlocks everything I'm going to try to share with you in this message. The number one reason God is isolating people right now is it's a pre-separating of the sheep from the goats, the true from the false, the people practicing churchianity from the people who are truly in Christianity. And these are the days that we're living in, brothers and sisters. We're in days of apostasy. And when you are amongst a bunch of apostate sheep, this calls with God's help to separate. There needs to be, when a person you're in relationship with or a church that you're fellowshipping with begins to turn away from the truth and they turn to apostasy, they turn to false doctrines and they turn to error, If you choose to go with them, you're going apostate. You're going in error. You're going away from God. There is no other option except for to separate. It doesn't matter how unloving it seems. It doesn't matter how many scriptures we can quote that say, do not forsake the gathering up amongst yourselves as some are in the habit of doing. There is no such thing as unity around a lie. Michael Commentary. Brothers and sisters, I want to spend probably the rest of this recording talking to you about the principle in God's Word and one of the ways He was dealing with me at this time and the way He's dealing with the majority of us all over the world right now. And that's regarding this topic of being isolated and alone or set apart for God. 
And this can be very, very confusing to people because the primary message that we see in Scripture is togetherness, to love one another, serve one another, commune with one another, do not forsake the gathering up uh, amongst one another's. And so there's this call, you know, the idea that, you know, the head cannot say to the foot, I do not need you, that we are all a part of the body of Christ. And so there is a tremendous amount of confusion when you try to reconcile this call of unity and togetherness in the scriptures that we all love and read and strive so much to obey and trying to reconcile that with the reality true Christians have been experiencing isolation, experiencing the inability to find communion with fellow believers that are wanting to walk in faithfulness and obedience and holiness and sanctification and the deep love of God as they are. And this is not something that was just happening for me. This is now, I have discovered a spiritual phenomenon that's happening all over the world and it has been for years. You know, again, what is my authority to speak on this? I would venture to say ever so humbly that I'm one of only a few people in the entire world that has received, again, last year I stopped counting. I took a quick count and estimated that over 50,000 people had sent me not just emails, but the majority of these people have sent me true pouring out of their hearts and their stories and what they've experienced. I, I find it difficult to think that there's a story I haven't heard. I've heard so many stories, it's truly remarkable. And so what has happened is, is that over this last seven plus years of full-time ministry, I've got to see an umbrella, a kind of a 30,000 foot view of global Christianity, Christianity in crisis, the counterfeits of Christianity and what God is doing unique in his designs by his sovereign hand and providence in the lives of true believers, those who are not satisfied with this earthly, worldly, carnal, man-made churchianity thing that so is so popular. And I've been able to see how God is dealing with people's lives all around the world. And I have to tell you, he's dealing with a lot of people the same way he was with me. And one of those ways was regarding this subject of isolation, where you're all of a sudden alone and you find yourself so confused because all of the great popular ministers online talk about how no man is an island and we were created for fellowship and you can't do this alone and you're not supposed to be away from your church family and you'll hear how dangerous it is to be alone. Listen, if you're a fledgling new Christian and you don't have a Bible and you don't have all of the amazing teaching that we have access to through books and the teachings of men that have gone before us. If you don't have that, without a doubt, it's very dangerous to be isolated and alone. But if you are maturing in your faith, if you've been in this, quote, Christianity for a number of years and God has isolated you where you now start to feel separate. See, what I want you to understand, and I'm going to read some of the wonderful, wonderful teachings I've collected over the years on this. But what I want you to see is that there is an isolation that God is doing that is very good, that is very biblical, and also has a lot to do with the time that we are living in. We are not in the beginning of the book of Acts where there was this building up of the church. We are in the dying out of the church. You have got to understand this. This is a key that unlocks everything I'm going to try to share with you in this message. 
We are in a different age, a different season of the body of Christ. It's very obvious when you look into, you know, studying Christianity and what's going on with Christianity, what's being taught in the name of Christianity, what's not being taught in the name of Christianity, the arguments of Christianity, the attacks against Christianity. You can see we are living in a very different day and age than the early church was. We face some of the same problems, but we face a slew of different problems that they didn't even have to face. So we are in very different days than were the early church. We have very different problems, very different needs, and we're in a very different stage of life. For example, a growing young person has different needs than somebody who's in the geriatric stage of life. They're affected by different threats. They have different comforts. They have different needs, different abilities, different longevities, different strengths, different weaknesses, different levels of knowledge and understanding, different expectations of life different expectations from society, different roles to play and responsibilities to fulfill in the family. They're in very different stages of life. So you can't take general principles and say, hey, everything that applies to a young person applies to an old person. It doesn't work that way. And that's why we can't take everything in the Bible and say everything that applied to the book of Acts applies to us because it doesn't. And I could do an entire sermon on just that one thing of all the things we see happening in the book of Acts that we've never seen since. People being teleported, kings dropping dead and being devoured by worms right in front of everybody, the prayer room that you're in beginning to actually shake. You know, a Bible study you're in, a guy falls asleep, falls out of the window, dies, and the minister who's teaching the Bible study goes down, lays on top of him, and brings him right back to life. You don't see these kind of things happening. These things were normal in the book of Acts. We're in a very different stage but sticking with point, the number one reason God is isolating people right now is it's a pre-separating of the sheep from the goats, the true from the false, the people practicing churchianity from the people who are truly in Christianity, those who know about God from those who truly know Him or desire to know Him. God in the very beginning, God in the very beginning did this act where He separated light from dark. And we see that even today, God is still separating dark from light, good from evil, truth from error, right from wrong. This is that call in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 to not be unequally yoked with that of unbelievers. For what does light have in common with dark? Christ have in common with Belial. The temple of idols have in common with the temple of God. These things have no harmony in one another. So what's really happening is we are now in a state of apostasy in the church that the Bible predicted that in the end times many would depart from the faith giving heed to doctrines of demons falling away from true doctrine and instead no longer putting up with it would begin to surround themselves with a great number of teachers boy do we have no shortage of teachers today that will speak what our itching ears want to hear men turning aside from the truth to myth and these are the days that we're living in, brothers and sisters. We're in days of apostasy. And when you are amongst a bunch of apostate sheep, this calls with God's help to separate. There needs to be, when a person you're in relationship with or a church that you're fellowshipping with begins to turn away from the truth and they turn to apostasy, they turn to false doctrines and they turn to error, if you choose to go with them, you're going apostate. You're going in error. You're going away from God. There is no other option except for to separate. It doesn't matter how unloving it seems. It doesn't matter how many scriptures we can quote that say, do not 
forsake the gathering up amongst yourselves as some are in the habit of doing. There is no such thing as unity around a lie. There's no such thing as unity around error. There's no such thing as unity around false doctrines, around half-heartedness. You can't have unity around disobedience, around worldliness. God is not calling any of us. I've often said, if I'm the last person, so be it, and be seen as the lone ranger because I'm the only one who's willing to obey the truth as far as I know it and as far as I can understand it in God's Word, and nobody else is willing to come with me. Condemn me all you want for not being gathered up amongst the goats. I'm separating. As Tozer says, you know, the wise sheep, when he sees the rest of the sheep becoming goats or falling off the cliff or headed towards the cliff where they're getting ready to fall off, the wise sheep in order to save himself disaffiliates. This is all throughout Scripture. Do not be partners with the disobedient. Those who have a form of godliness but without power, separate from them. Have nothing to do with them. 2 Timothy 3 verse 5. There's all kinds of Scriptures that talk about you know, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. You cannot be a part of those who are going apostate. We are in a season where there is a mass exodus away from truth and a mass hurting towards the false, towards the counterfeit, towards deception. And so God has a wonderful reason. We shouldn't be so surprised of all this isolation so many of us are feeling as Christians. There's nothing wrong with it. If we were in the book of Acts, there would be something perhaps wrong with it unless God had a specific role for a particular prophet or minister or a particular person to experience. And watch this. If God calls us to separate from the disobedient, which He does all throughout His Word, and if the times we're living in, there are not God-fearing people that we can find ourselves fellowshipping with that will help encourage us and grow us up in our faith. And if when we are fellowshipping with people, we point out the error that we see in their walk based on Scripture, and they do not have ears to hear, and they remain stubborn and obstinate, and they will not turn back in humility to the truth, then at some point, we're called to disfellowship. I mean, look, even Jesus taught in Matthew 18, you give a person three chances. You go confront them on your own between you and them. If they hear you, you've won them over. If not, you take two or three other witnesses. If they don't hear you then, you go and you proclaim it to the whole church. And after that person three times has shown an unwillingness to repent and come back into fellowship with God's word and you, Jesus said, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. That means to disfellowship, disassociate. Now, if you have an opportunity at one point down the road to later show them the truth and minister the gospel to them, you should. But as of now, you need to treat them as somebody who's dangerous, as somebody who's choosing to walk towards a cliff that ends in death. And you need to disfellowship from that person. This isn't, by the way, the only reason for isolation. But you can see, I want you to see this point. God was not allowing me to find a church to plant in. He was not allowing me. And I, I grow increasingly frustrated in this. And you'll hear in future recordings where I'm trying to do what the Bible commands. I'm trying to find fellowship. I enjoy being around people. I want to be in fellowship with them. But God is going to isolate me for a lot of good reasons. Listen, brothers and sisters, I now know for a fact if I would have gotten plugged in even to this, quote, good church that you hear me starting to wonder, do I even fit here? If God would have allowed me to stay plugged in in that church, I would not know him like I do today. I would have known the church. I would have known church talk. I would have known more of the church ways. I would have known a lot more people. But I tell you the truth, 
I would not know God the way I know Him today. And let me tell you something that's so sad is that I'm not able to go to these churches in this, even in this season of my life that were in these recordings back in the 2014 year. I was not able, brothers and sisters, to go to these churches and find people that were ahead of me in my faith. You might say, well, Michael, I mean, that sounds awfully self-confident, self-righteous, boasting. No, see, I contend that I'm having the normal Christian life and all throughout my messages, I talk about how I'm the chief of all fools. I'm the biggest of fools I know. I made the most amount of mistakes of anybody I know. I was stubborn longer than anybody I knew, except for the fact, again, I always want to maintain I did have a heart to truly know the truth. I did have a desire and a real passion for, for loving God. And I did respond in humility when God re would rebuke me. And that's why God saw if he would continue to beat me over the head, eventually I would turn from it because I showed a pattern of doing this. But sticking with the point, I'm not saying that I'm better than anybody. I am saying that because God was at work in my life like this, and because I was responding to his speaking voice, and because I was willing to make sacrificial you know, offering of my life and choices and will and desires and time to Him, God began to respond to me in ways that helped me to know Him in ways that I began to cease finding people in church that know Him like this. Just when I would get excited about a man and his knowledge of scriptures or, you know, his seeming passion for the Bible study, I'd find out that he had an idol worship of the Alabama football team. And I would say, wow, this just doesn't reconcile. Like, why did God show me that my love of motocross was abominable in his eyes, but he hasn't yet shown you, and you're supposed to be so much further down the road than I am, and yet you still can't see you idolize football. I don't understand why God hasn't shown that to this man yet. And this is just one example of dozens, okay? And so this is where I began to see God says, separate from these people. There was always something faulty in every one of these people that I would meet that was so enthusiastic about God. When you look and you measure them and measure them against the Word of God, I would always see something that was not measuring up in spite of the fact they were claiming to be mature followers of God, really believing they had the corner on the Holy Spirit. I mean, these people believed they needed to be ministering to me, that they were ahead of me, that they, you know, they could offer me something. You see? So I'm not talking about growing believers who are still ignorant of the ways of God. These are all people who claimed to be very much mature believers, having walked with God for decades, experienced all kinds of moves of God. And then when I examine closely with the Word of God against their life, I see, aha, this does not measure up. A tree is recognized by its fruit. God cannot bless a person who has a heart of idolatry. Just again, as one example. So God separating me was not only to separate me from the goats, but also had the important vital role of helping me not depend upon people, but to hear his voice and learn his ways to have unity with God. Now I'm able to be in fellowship with other people, not at the expense of my relationship with God. And in fact, my, my relationship and being isolated with God brought me to this place of rich abundance for other people. And so I would say to all those ministers who would say to me back then, Michael, this is so dangerous, man. You're isolated and alone. I'm really worried about you. Like a lot of people said about me, you know, man, I mean, Satan's going to get you. And I ask you, did Satan get me? I, I say this ever so humbly and yet ever so boldly. Did Satan get me? Was it so dangerous for me to be isolated and alone? All those people who worried about me, was it wrong for God to take me out? Did I mishear God being alone? Let the record state that Satan did not get me, I got him. 
Can I say hallelujah? I'm not saying that he won't ever get a strike against me. I'm not saying, you know, a violation of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. If you think you're standing firm, be careful lest you fall. No, this isn't pride speaking. This is I'm more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus speaking. This is no weapon formed against me shall prosper speaking. This is if God be for you, who can be against you speaking. This is, and God is faithful and he will strengthen and protect me from every single evil attack. 2 Thessalonians 3, 3 speaking. This is simply the reward of the servants of God and those who fear him and obey him. Satan cannot do anything to me that God will not allow. And now it's been proven all this isolation that my parents were so afraid of. This is all so dangerous. Do you now see how what men thought was right, God has shown to be foolish? And the foolishness of God was wiser than the wisdom of men. Do you see this? If God isolates you because you can't find and he can't find anybody for you to fellowship with that won't take you backwards and he wants you to learn and know his voice above all, then you have to absolutely trust that God has the ability to give you the grace to protect you in that situation. God is going to hold you up and protect you in anything he calls you to. Now, if you take it upon yourself and you jump into some wild thing or you start saying, yeah, I'm just going to leave everybody, but yet you're not truly seeking after God and you don't have a real sincere heart before him and you're still loving your sin. Well, yeah, you're in a dangerous place. You're dangerous and you are a perfect target for the devil. But I want to share with you some of the principles that I've collected over the years from other great men and women of God regarding the subject of being isolated and alone with God. I'm just going to read this straight out of my notepad from my iPhone. First quote comes from Leonard Ravenhill. Great eagles fly alone. Great lions hunt alone. Great souls walk alone, alone with God. Such loneliness is hard to endure and impossible to enjoy unless God accompanied. Prophets are lone men. They walk alone pray alone, and God makes them alone. Jeremiah 15, 17 says, I never sat in the company of revelers, never made merry with them. I sat alone because your hand was on me and you had filled me with indignation. A lot of what you hear in my recordings is me having been set apart alone with God and filled with indignation towards all that is done in error in the name of Jesus Christ. It is better to walk alone than with a crowd headed in the wrong direction, anonymous. Someone has remarked that for every servant of God, there must be much more of the hidden life than of the public life. How true that is, Austin Sparks. Quote, if thou withdraw thyself from trifling conversation and idle goings about, as well as from novelties and gossip, thou shalt find thy time sufficient and apt for good meditation. The greatest saints used to avoid, as far as they could, the company of men and chose to live in secret with God. One has said, quote, As often as I have gone among men, so oft have I returned less a man. This is what we often experience when we've been long time in the conversation with men. For it is easier to be altogether silent than it is not to exceed in word. It is easier to remain hidden at home than to keep sufficient guard upon thyself out of doors. He, therefore, that seeketh to reach that which is hidden and spiritual must go with Jesus, quote, apart from the multitude. No man safely goeth abroad who loveth not to rest at home. No man safely talketh 
but he who loveth to hold his peace. No man safely ruleth, but he who loveth to be subject. No man safely commandeth, but he who loveth to obey. Thomas Akempis, Imitation of Christ. Brothers and sisters, I want you to think about what people talk about when you're in company with them in church. I want you to think about what comes out of the hearts of men, even when you're at church or when you're together in a Bible study or fellowship. And when, when you haven't yet gotten to the obligatory part of the group meeting where you're going to study the Bible or talk about it, I want you to think about what comes out of people's mouths and out of their hearts when they're not under the pressure of, hey, I need to be a Christian right now. And what I found is people talked about stuff that was nonsense. They talked about things that was worthless, or they talked about things that were in error, or they talked about things that were worldly, or they talked about things that were godless. And I started seeing this over and over again. Do you know that the Bible says avoid godless chatter for those who participate in it become more and more ungodly? You see, it's like when you go around these Christians, they first want to talk about all the superficial small talk stuff. And they want to talk about, oh, this and oh, that. You cannot imagine the people in the book of Acts doing that. You cannot imagine walking into an early church home and having them talk about all the trifling things that we today as, quote, Christians talk about how your hair is and your dress and how your boat's running and what's going on with the stock market and what's going on over here and how's this and how's Henry and his little girlfriend and all these trifling matters and what you're eating and the latest diet. And yet, if you go to almost any Bible study in the United States of America, because I've been to a lot of them and I've been to a lot of churches, these are the kind of things that Christians are talking about when somebody hasn't rung the bell and said, okay, it's time for us to officially talk about God. I was invited to a home fellowship Bible study not too long ago, uh, just past year. I only went one night. I was excited because I loved one of the people that was there and the, the person who had invited me and I went. I was only able to go one night. Why? I had to be the first person to bring up God in this Bible study. I sat around for 15 to 20 minutes and heard these people talk about everything that was worthless and senseless and worldly for 15 minutes until I had to be the one to finally say, you know, hey, why are you guys here? What is the reason for gathering? It was really embarrassing for me as a follower of God. Now listen, this is why I separated from these so-called churches. And this is why people want to turn around and mock me and accuse me of being holier than thou, being a fanatic, taking this thing way too seriously. And yet the Spirit of God in me finds indignation when I go to gather with a group of people who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ. And I have to be the one to say, hey, uh, do you think it's time we talk about God? He's here with us and yet we're ignoring him. Brothers and sisters, if you're a part of one of those kind of groups where you talk about all these trifling things. I mean, I just ask you, go watch A.D., uh, The Kingdom of God. I forget, I forget the name. Just go watch. Even though it's, it's television made by man, go watch the movie Jesus of Nazareth. Go watch the Gospel of John. Go watch some of these old classic, you know, the Ten Commandments movie and put yourself back in that pure early church scene and try to see if you can reconcile the relationship and talk that you have in your church and your fellowship groups and your home studies. See if you can reconcile that with what you can see in the Bible and what many men have tried to you know, illustrate with movies and skits like that. Are you able to reconcile these? What has changed?
Is the Spirit of God different now that He allows us to have all this trifling nonsense talk? This is what Thomas Akempis is talking about here, which I would have quoted maybe not as articulately, but I've already quoted a lot of this in these recordings you've heard me say. Now, let me move on to Streams in the Desert, February 28th. The scripture is Genesis 32:24, And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. Left alone. What different emotions those words conjure up to each of us. To some, they spell loneliness and desolation. To others, rest and quiet. That's me, by the way. To be left alone without God would be too awful for words, but to be left alone with Him is a foretaste of heaven. And I say hallelujah, brothers and sisters. If His followers spent more time alone with Him, we should have spiritual giants again. The Master set us an example. Note how often He went to be alone with God, and He had a mighty purpose behind the command, quote, when you pray, go into your room close the door and pray. The greatest miracles of Elijah and Elisha took place when they were alone with God. It was alone with God that Jacob became a prince, and just there that we too may become people who are wondered at, Zechariah 3.8. Joshua was alone when the Lord came to him, Joshua 1.1. Gideon and Jephthah were by themselves when commissioned to save Israel, Judges 6.11 and 11.29. Moses was by himself at the burning bush, Exodus 3, 1 through 5. Cornelius was praying by himself when the angel came to him, Acts 10.2. No one was with Peter on the housetop when he was instructed to go to the Gentiles, Acts 10.9. John the Baptist was alone in the wilderness, Luke 1.90. John the Baptist was alone in the wilderness, Luke 1.80. And John the Beloved was all alone on the island of Patmos when he was the closest to God. Revelation 1.9 Earnestly desire to get alone with God. If we neglect it, we not only rob ourselves but others too of blessing. Since when we are blessed, we are able to pass on blessing to others. It may mean less outward, visible work, but the work we will do will have more depth and power. Another wonderful result will be that people will see, quote, no one except Jesus in our lives, Matthew 17, 8. The impact of being alone with God in prayer cannot be overemphasized. If chosen men had never been alone, in deepest silence, open-doored to God, no greatness ever had been dreamed or done. Streams in the Desert, April 11th. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs, Matthew 10, 27. Our Lord is constantly taking us into the dark in order to tell us something. It may be the darkness of a home where bereavement has drawn the blinds, the darkness of a lonely and desolate life in which some illness has cut us off from the light and the activity of life, or the darkness of some crushing sorrow and disappointment. It is there He tells us His secrets, great and wonderful, eternal and infinite, he causes our eyes, blinded by the glare of things on earth, to behold the heavenly constellations. And our ears suddenly detect even the whisper of His voice, which has been so often drowned out by the turmoil of earth's loud cries. Yet these revelations always come with a corresponding responsibility. Quote, What I tell you, speak in the daylight. Proclaim from the roofs. 
Brothers and sisters, do you see that this is exactly what I'm doing in the Trusting God in the Wilderness series? What Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, has spoke to me in the darkness of my wilderness journey, I now today, seven years later, am proclaiming to all of you from the rooftops in direct obedience to the Lord's command. It goes on to say, We are not to linger in the darkness or stay in the closet. Soon we will be summoned to take our position in the turmoil and the storms of life. And when that moment comes, we are to speak and proclaim what we have learned. This gives new meaning to suffering, the saddest part of which is often the apparent feeling of uselessness it causes. We tend to think, how useless I am. What am I doing that is making a difference for others? Why is this expensive perfume, John 12, 3, of my soul being wasted? These are the desperate cries of the sufferer, but God has a purpose in all of it. He takes his children to higher levels of fellowship so they may hear him speaking, quote, face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Exodus 33, 11. Brothers and sisters, God speaks to me as his friend. This is the experience you're hearing in trusting God in the wilderness. God is speaking to me. He's guiding me. He's giving me insights into my life, into things in the world, into things in the church. And this is not my experience. The words I'm reading to you were written long before I was ever even thought of. These are the experiences of all the great men and women of God who have taken him seriously. He goes on to say, and then they are to deliver the message to those at the foot of the mountain. Is that not what I've been doing with you, calling up? There's higher ground to take. Were the 40 days Moses spent on the mountain wasted? What about the time Elijah spent at Mount Horeb or the years Paul spent in Arabia? There is no shortcut to a life of faith, which is an absolute necessity for a holy and victorious life. Pause. I have said to many people, there is no substitute in the Christian life for time under tension. There is no substitute. I get emails to this day, just the other day, a, a person I've been mentoring now on and off for several years, three or four years found herself again in the midst of confusion and this, this Christian life. I'm caught in this circle and the ups and downs, and it seems like I'm just getting nowhere fast. And once again, I had to remind her of being patient before God. When I tell you it takes a lot longer than you think, brothers and sisters, you're hearing it in trusting God in the wilderness. Do you hear how I'm having to go through this? You might go, wow, Michael, this is all kind of sounding the same. Yeah. That's what the wilderness looks like. It looks like the same and it's day in and it's day out and it's weekend and it's week out and it's month in and it's month out and it's year in and it's year out. That is part of the great sifting. There is no greater tool in God's hands than time under tension. Somebody smacking you across your face, a divorce, somebody stealing everything you own, your house catching on fire. None of that compares in suffering. None of that even comes close to suffering when you have to wait and wait and wait and wait and wait and wait, and I could just keep on going to make my point. Being patient means you are going to suffer. There is great suffering in patience, and you hear what I'm trying to do now is to call back to all of you from the top of the mountain and say, listen, keep coming. There's life after the wilderness. Keep coming. There's comfort after the suffering of patience has had its good and perfect work in you. Keep coming. And, and listen to this. These are amazing words that men like F.B. Meyer and men like Charles Spurgeon and men like A.W. Tozer and A.B. Simpson and Andrew Murray and George Mueller, these great men and women of God, these giants, Amy Carmichael and 
Francis Ridley Havergal, they rode and left tracks for us, Miss Charles Cowman, to follow in. They're calling back to us and saying, come and now I'm calling back as a contemporary of yours, I'm calling back to you. There is no shortcut to a life of faith, which is an absolute necessity for a holy and victorious life. We must have periods of lonely meditation and fellowship with God. Our souls must have times of fellowship with Him on the mountain and experience valleys of quiet rest in the shadow of a great rock. We must spend some nights beneath the stars when darkness has covered the things of earth, silenced the noise of human life, and expanded our view, revealing the infinite and the eternal. All these are as absolutely essential as food is for our bodies. I say hallelujah and amen. In this way alone, can the sense of God's presence become the unwavering possession of our souls, enabling us to continually say, as the psalmist once wrote, quote, You are near, O Lord. Psalm 119, 151, F. B. Meyer. Some hearts, like evening primroses, open more beautifully in the shadows of life. Streams in the Desert, May 1st, Morning Edition. He was going there on foot. Acts 20, 13. Why did Paul prefer to go on foot? And how may we account for his desire to go alone? There are times in every man's life when he wants no comrade on the road with him. A precious part of our creed is, quote, I believe in the communion of the saints. But, after all, is it not in such isolated communion that we have the closest fellowship with God in Christ? It is in secret that we learn the secret of the Lord. It was in the eerie solitude of Bethel and in the gray dawn by the Ford Jabbok that Jacob was granted visions of God. It was when he was alone in the silent desert that Moses was shown the burning bush and received the divine commission. It was when Joshua walked unattended under the stars by the wall of Jericho that the captain of the Lord hosts stood before him. It was when Isaiah was alone in the temple that a live coal touched his lips. It was when Mary was alone that the angel brought to her the message of the Lord. It was when Elisha was plowing his lonely furrow that the prophet's mantle fell upon his shoulders. Noah built and voyaged alone. His neighbors laughed at his strangeness and perished. Abraham wandered and worshipped alone. Sodomites smiled at the simple shepherd, followed the fashion, and fed the flames. Daniel dined and prayed alone. Jesus lived and died alone. Ah, it is good to, quote, go on foot sometimes, when even our nearest and dearest go by another road. For when we are alone, we have a better chance of one, capital O-N-E, joining us and making our hearts burn while He talks with us by the way. I love the lonely creative hours with God. One of my favorites, Madame Guillaume. Streams in the Desert, August 27th evening. He took him aside, away from the crowd, Mark 7.33. Paul withstood not only the tests that came while he was active in his service to Christ, but also the tests of solitude during captivity. We may be able to withstand the strain of the most intense labor, even if coupled with severe suffering, and yet completely break down if set aside from all Christian activity and work. Brothers and sisters, it happened to me in 2018. Can't wait to get to that part of the story one day and tell you absolutely the most intense suffering I've ever faced. They go on to write, 
This would be especially true if we were forced to endure solitary confinement in a prison cell. Even the most majestic bird, which soars higher than all others and endures the longest flights, will sink into despair when placed in a cage where it is forced to helplessly beat its wings against its prison bars. Have you ever seen a magnificent eagle forced to languish in a small cage? With bowed head and drooping wings, it is a sad picture of the sorrow of inactivity. To see Paul in prison is to see another side of life. Have you noticed how he handled it? He seemed to be looking over the top of his prison wall and over the heads of his enemies. Notice how he even signed his name to his letters, not as the prisoner of Festus, nor of Caesar, and not as a victim of the Sanhedrin, but as a prisoner for the Lord, Ephesians 4.1. Through it all, he saw only the hand of God at work. To him, the prison became a palace with its corridors resounding with shouts of triumphant praise and joy. Forced from the missionary work he loved so well, Paul built a new pulpit, a new witness stand, and from his place of bondage arose some of the most encouraging and helpful ministries of Christian liberty. What precious messages of light came from the dark shadows of his captivity. Also think of the long list of saints who have followed the footsteps of Paul and were imprisoned for their faith. For 12 long years, John Bunyan's voice was silenced in an English jail in Bedford. Yet it was there he wrote the greatest work of his life, Pilgrim's Progress, read by more people than any other book in the world except the Bible. He once said, quote, I was at home in prison, and my great joy led me to sit and write and write, and the darkness of his long captivity became a wonderful dream to light the path of millions of weary pilgrims. Madame Guillon, the sweet-spirited French saint, endured a lengthy time behind prison walls, and like the sound of some caged birds whose songs are more beautiful as a result of their confinement, the music of her soul has traveled far beyond her dungeon walls to remove the sadness of many discouraged saints. Oh, the heavenly consolation that God has caused to flow out of places of solitude. S. C. Reese. Taken aside by Jesus to feel the touch of his hand, to rest for a while in the shadow of the rock in a weary land. Taken aside by Jesus in the loneliness dark and drear, where no other comfort may reach me than his voice to my heart so dear. Taken aside by Jesus to be quite alone with him, to hear his wonderful tones of love mid the silence and shadows dim. Taken aside by Jesus, shall I resist the desert place when I hear as never before and see him face to face. Streams in the Desert, October 26th, Evening Version. He went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. Matthew 14, 23. Christ Jesus, in his humanity, felt the need of complete solitude to be entirely by himself, alone with himself. Each of us knows how draining constant interchange with others can be and how it exhausts our energy. As part of humankind, Jesus knew this and felt the need to be by himself in order to regain his strength. Solitude was also important to him in order to fully realize his high calling, his human weakness, and his total dependence on his Father. As a child of God, how much more 
Do we need times of complete solitude, times to deal with the spiritual realities of life and to be alone with God the Father? If there was ever anyone who could dispense with special times of solitude and fellowship, it was our Lord. Yet even He could not maintain His full strength and power for His work and His fellowship with the Father without His quiet time. God desires that every servant of His would understand and perform this blessed practice, that His church would know how to train its children to recognize this high and holy privilege, and that every believer would realize the importance of making time for God alone. Oh, the thought of having God all alone to myself and knowing that God has me all alone to Himself. Andrew Murray November 21st, Morning, Streams in the Desert What lonely men were the great prophets of Israel. John the Baptist stood alone from the crowd. Paul has to say, Everyone deserted me, 2 Timothy 4.6 And who was ever more alone than the Lord Jesus? Victory for God is never won by the multitude. The man who dares to go where others hold back will find himself alone, but he will see the glory of God and enter into the secrets of eternity. Gordon Watt. Brothers and sisters, Gordon Watt wrote these words and died long before I was ever even thought of except by God. And yet, when you listen to trusting God in the wilderness, when you listen to walking with God into the impossible, when you listen to trusting God in the storm. And when you listen to even what I've just been talking about in my recordings here about being separated and called out from this church, you see a man who found himself alone but who has now seen the glory of God. When you watch the false God challenge, you see the glory of God. Do you realize that everything in the false God challenge, with the exception of part of the divorce, all came after I was separated from the so-called church, and I began walking alone with God. Listen, I, I have grown more in my relationship with the Lord outside the walls of the institution built by men called the church than I ever did inside that building. When I left and allowed those sheep to continue going, goats, most of them, when I allowed them to continue to go, revival broke out in my heart. Truly, revival broke out in my heart, and I cannot make this clear enough that all of the glory, the answered prayers, the amazing miracles that you've seen God do in my life, like I say, if you just go watch the False God Challenge and you see all that, you see a man who, who dared to go alone where others held back. I found myself alone, and then I have now seen the glory of God and entered into the secrets of eternity. What this man has written is true. It's my actual living experience. December 20th, streams in the desert. Look, a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered, each one to his own home, and I will be left alone. Yet I am not alone because my Father is with me. John 16, 32. It need not be said that to carry out conviction into action is a costly sacrifice. It may make necessary renunciations and separations which leave one to feel a strange sense both of deprivation and loneliness. Remember how I described this leaving the church feeling like another divorce. But he who will fly as an eagle does into the higher levels where cloudless day abides and live in the sunshine of God must be content to live a comparatively lonely life. I live a very lonely life, brothers and sisters. He writes, no bird is so solitary as the eagle. Eagles never fly in flocks. 
one or at most two ever being seen at once. But the life that is lived unto God, however it forfeits human companionships, knows divine fellowship. God seeks eagle men. No man ever comes into a realization of the best things of God who does not, upon the Godward side of his life, learn to walk alone with God. We find Abraham alone in Horeb upon the heights, but Lot dwelling in Sodom. Moses, skilled in all the wisdom of Egypt, must go 40 years into the desert alone with God. Paul, who was filled with Greek learning and also had sat at the feet of Gamaliel, must also go into Arabia and learn the desert life with God. Let God isolate us. Brothers and sisters, God was isolating me by not allowing me to find a church to plug into. God sets apart the godly for himself. He writes, I do not mean the isolation of a monastery. In this isolating experience, he develops an independence of faith and life so that the soul needs no longer the constant help, prayer, faith, or attention of his neighbor. Brothers and sisters, this is why I never have to ask anybody to pray for me. This is why you don't hear in my recordings me telling you what's going on in my life and saying, oh, please pray for me. I have found God. I have his ear. He has mine. I have everything I can draw from, from the source. I need not consult flesh and blood. And because of the dispensation we're in, where I was not able to be in fellowship and pray with people in agreement, God has blessed me with that abundance of grace to do so. And I no longer need the help of people. You see this? Men have known these things that I'm discovering in the last seven years of my life. They've known this for thousands of years. Writer writes, Such assistance and inspiration from the other members are necessary and have their place in the Christian's development But there comes a time when they act as a direct hindrance to the individual's faith and welfare. Remembering the time God said, don't call Larry, don't talk to anybody until you come up onto that mountain. That was the day God disconnected me from all flesh and blood and I was never to consult flesh and blood again after that. He writes, God knows how to change the circumstances in order to give us an isolating experience. Boy, does he ever. We yield to God and he takes us through something and when it's over, Those about us who are no less loved than before are no longer depended upon. We realize that he has wrought some things in us and that the wings of our souls have learned to beat the upper air. We must dare to be alone. Jacob must be left alone if the angel of God is to whisper in his ear the mystic name of Shiloh. Daniel must be left all alone if he is to see celestial visions. John must be banished to Patmos if he is deeply to take and firmly to keep, quote, the print of heaven. And I'm going to add, and Michael Criswell must be left alone if he is ever to have any bread to feed the multitudes of the broken through RelentlessHeart.com. Quote, he tread the winepress alone. Are we prepared for a splendid isolation rather than fail him? Brothers and sisters, let me interrupt here for a second and say there is an emphasis on becoming one with other members of the body of Christ by directly becoming one with them through fellowship, through participating in church meetings and through being around with them and serving with them and so forth and so on. And there's this real direct influence put on us to try to be one. We, we hear all about this unity and love one another and serve one another and be together with one another, as I've mentioned in the beginning of this recording, right? And so there's this kind of direct, okay, I'm supposed to be one with them and let me do this. That is not what Christ, I believe, intended for us. I believe unity with one another is simply the byproduct of 
of our being one with God. So, for example, whenever I meet somebody that is already one with God, I do not have to have any effort to be one with them. I have some relationships with people that are as effortless as putting on an old pair of comfortable shoes. And, and we have unity as a byproduct without effort. It's very much like the production of fruit. You don't try to produce the fruit. The fruit is produced as a result of remaining attached as a branch to the vine. And just like that, when you remain attached to the Father and in unity with the Holy Spirit and in unity with Jesus Christ, when you find another person who's doing that, unity between the two of you is automatic. You know, my hand does not have to try to be in unity with my wrist. My wrist does not have to try to be in unity with my elbow. My elbow doesn't have to try to be in unity with my shoulder because all of these are in unity with my body. They're all in unity. It's a byproduct. So my brain thinks a thought and all of these parts in my arm act in unity without even having to try. And so I find this to be the case that we think that we're being unity with one another when we're just being around one another, when we create a motorcycle club or a, a, a hat making club or a, an adventure club or a hiking club and, or, or we'll go hand out water to the homeless club and we, 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 we feed people and we do all these things together and we think we're fellowshipping and we think we have unity. This is not the kind of unity. The heathen can do this. The godless do this even better than the church does. They have all their meetings and their groups and their fellowship and all that stuff. There has to be a unity that God is speaking about that's deeper than that. It's a spiritual unity and it comes by once you become attached to the Father and once you have unity with Him and the Holy Spirit, any other person that has that, you will have immediate unity with. This is the unity that Jesus Christ is talking about. So you cannot neglect one-on-one -on -one time with God. You see, if you put the cart before the horse and you think that you can find God amongst the crowds, you're wrong. You have to find God alone. And then out of that alone time that you've developed with God, you're able to have this rich, blessed communion with others who have it. And by the way, if they do not have it, you know it immediately. Which is why so many of us, and I'm going to end the recording with this by saying, this is why so many of us feel so alone, brothers and sisters, because there are so few people in this world who are willing to truly sacrifice their entire life. You know, I did it. I, I'm not going to apologize for saying this. I'm not, I don't care how it sounds to other people. I'm only doing what the Bible commands me to do. It shouldn't be that it's such an anomaly. It shouldn't be that it's such a wild thing that people praise me for doing something so radical when it's just simply the normal Christian life to do what I've done and what other people are doing following my example and what I'm sure millions more have done that have never heard of me and I've never heard of them. But I've done this. And when you actually do this, when you actually take up your cross and deny yourself, when you're actually willing to lose anybody and everything for your life and you get over this ridiculous fear of, you know, losing your life and losing your happiness and losing your comfort and being made a doormat because you submitted yourself to, you know, God's laws and before other people and you allowed other evil people to do things to you and you get over your fear of these things because you have a total trust in God's word you begin to know him in a way that no other person that calls themselves a Christian will ever know him. And then it becomes the most frustrating thing of my life. How often I hear people tell me they're a Christian and I know they're not. 
And even if they are, they're in a uh, Christianity only from an intellectual belief. They're not filled with the Holy Spirit. They are not living a surrendered life. They are not doing the will of God. It is horrible. Let me just tell you, it is horrible for me to be a Christian minister in these days. I face a torment. Perhaps some of you might uh, be a minister as well. I don't know. I'm not saying I'm the only one. Some of you may face, face it just as a, a, a lay member of the body of Christ. I face a tremendous torment uh, daily, weekly, monthly, yearly when I see that I know God like this and so many other Christians think they do and yet I know they do not. And they are in possession of a counterfeit and they do not realize it. They're convinced that because they believe the things I'm saying that we have agreement, we have unity. No, until you're doing the things I'm doing based upon the things I'm saying that I believe, you and I don't have unity. Christianity is not just believing, it's doing. You can believe all the same doctrines. You can amen every one of my messages. You can believe every scripture I quote. But if you're not doing them, if you're not living a life of practical faith, if you're not taking up your cross, denying yourself, if you're not embracing suffering as Jesus Christ calls and set us an example to do, if you're not loving God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, if you're not taking up your cross and denying yourself, if you're not losing your life to find it, if you're not hating your life in this world in order to keep it, if you're not becoming poor in spirit, if you're not pulling out your eye to maintain purity and get sin out of your life, if you're not cutting off your hand, cutting off your arm, if you're not despising and growing in your despising of the world and all the things in the world, if you're not free of your love of money, if you're not overcoming your anger, if you haven't gotten those sexual sins out of your life, if you're still living a life of fear and you're afraid to surrender to God, if you still are a people pleaser, you're in bondage. You're not living free as Christ called you to be free, and I'm going to know it when I meet you, and any true Christian will. And that creates torment for us because we want you to come up to the mountain with us. We want you to know God like us. We don't want you to think that we think we're holier than thou, that because we preach holiness, because we preach life to the full, because we preach that you can be totally free from any lifestyle sins, that you can be a slave to righteousness and not sin. Because we teach Romans 6.14, sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. Because we teach what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul. Because we preach that you are going to face tremendous shame when you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ having found out you've got a counterfeit. These things do not make us holier than thou Pharisees looking down our nose at other people like so many people do. I have never once looked down in hopes that the person I'm looking down at would stay down there. That's what Pharisees do. They're not looking down at you in hopes that you'll rise up to their level and be equal with them in blessing. They're looking down at you to elevate themselves in a place to make them feel good that they are self-righteous. I look down at people every day in my inbox. And for me to say I don't would be the most stupid thing for me to, to lie about. Paul had to look down at every single church he ever wrote a letter to. He was at a higher place spiritually than the rest of us. He had to look down on us. He did not look down on us as a position of, hey, I'm better than you and I always will be. He looks down on them with an extended hand saying, hey, there's higher altitude here. Let's go. Climb with me. That's what I'm doing all of my messages for. That's why I'm sharing everything. It's not so that people can say, oh, wow, Michael, you really made it up there. Brother, send us a note. Tell us, how is the view from up there? What does it look like? No, I'm saying, no, come up and find out for yourself. Here's what the view looks like. You won't believe it. You got to come up. You know, it's just the ignorant, prideful, deceived hearts of men 
who look at my ministry and say I'm teaching works-based salvation. This is complete ignorance and error. Who say I'm self-righteous, I'm no different than the Pharisees. Really? Man, open your eyes, you blind Pharisee, and climb up here. Set down your self-righteous bags, your indignation that's founded in your own self-pity and your own religious spirit. Lose the religious spirit. Humble yourself before God and start climbing this mountain and get up here. I'll forgive you. I already will if you'll apologize. I'll forgive you. I forgive you now because you know not what you do. Climb up. Climb up. And brothers and sisters, I've kind of gone all over the place here. Forgive me, but I make this point that we are going to be in a time of isolation from here on out. You're going to find yourself more and more isolated from the world if you're going to find yourself more and more after the Holy Spirit, deeper Christian life. You're not going to find very many people who are willing to pay the price in this age of apostasy that we're in. So prepare yourself and just enjoy it that God looks down amongst all the darkness and sees you as a light. I'll never forget living in India during the Diwali festival, the celebration of all their false gods and the fireworks and the booming sound is going off everywhere. I mean, it's like unlike anything I've ever heard. Our 4th of July is nothing compared to Diwali in India. And so they're celebrating their gods. And during this time, uh, I'm in the kitchen with Persis and I just started, I just went into a praise. I felt uh, so bad uh, for God, knowing that he was looking down and seeing 1.3 billion people worshiping false gods all at one time. India is so massive. You and I are nothing compared to India. Let me just tell you that. We are nothing. We think we're so big. You know something? You're outnumbered by four people in India. For every one of you here, if you're, if you're in the United States, there's four of you in India. To give you an idea, America thinks it's so big and so wonderful and so the center of the universe with its little 300 some odd million people. 1.3 billion in a landmass that's a quarter of the size of the United States. And I was living there at a time when all 1.3 billion, which means that one out of every seven people on the planet at that moment in time was worshiping the false gods of Satan, demons. And I'm there in a city of 10 million people and I looked up and I said, God Almighty, I pray in the name of Jesus amidst all this darkness that you'll be pleased to see this one light. God, I can't do anything to change all the darkness around me. I, I can't affect them, Father, but I can, I can give you my praise. I can give you my worship. And Father, I pray that you're pleased to have and see the remnant. Oh, brothers and sisters, it was a glorious moment of sadness and at the same time, joy in my heart to be able to, to call the Father's eyes down upon me and say, Father, please be pleased that I'm worshiping you, the one true God. Be pleased that, Father, wherever I go, I'll tell about you. Be pleased, Father, that I serve you and I worship you and I stand against all this false. Father, in Jesus' name, be pleased. And you know something? I know God delights in the remnant. So just remember, with God, we're not alone. But you are going to be alone. The more you follow God, the farther down this road I've gotten, brothers and sisters, I tell you the truth, the lonelier it gets. The narrower the road gets, the less people. And you find you can't go walking next to somebody in this narrow road. You just can't do it. There's either the people that are ahead of you or the people that are behind you. You can't walk beside somebody to go into the narrow gate. It's the truth. End of commentary. May God bless you in Jesus' name.